0: So this is the second half of uh, my keynote uh, on the Middle Ages. We finished last time dealing with the early Middle Ages and uh, with uh, the time of the knights and the castles and the cathedrals and the tournaments and all of those themes that would connect you to the early, early Middle Ages. And now that we're fully into the Middle Ages, we're going to start the second half with an examination of the church. And the role that the church began to play or the more dominant role that the church began to play in people's lives, uh, the people living in the Middle Ages. Okay, So we're gonna have a couple of clips that we're gonna watch here and some things that we're gonna explore about the church. So you've probably never contemplated this before. Let me briefly explain exactly what's going on around you out there even today. The Catholic Church is the first Christian Church. There are many Christian churches, many denominations, but the Catholic Church, the Holy Apostolic, and Catholic Church, is the first formalized church that comes out of the Christian tradition in the years and decades and uh, centuries after Christ dies. And ultimately, over time, as you have already read in Ellison Essler, the Catholic Church conveniently begins to insert itself into the mechanisms that the Romans created to control the empire. So the infrastructure that the Romans built, the Catholic Church then begins to fill that infrastructure and simply use it. They use their roads, they use their offices, they use their buildings, and so on and so forth, and they become, in many ways, the replacement of the Roman Empire, except that this is a Christian empire. And the way that they organize themselves is in this particular case, or, or, or with this graph that you're looking at here, is based on a simple idea called the diocese, okay? So at the center of this graph is the Pope, Papa, the father of the church. Literally, he's, he's called the vicar of Christ, which means that he's literally Christ's representative on earth. He's an elected person who is elected by a number of his peers, and I'll explain that in just a second. So at the center of all of this is the pope, and radiating around the pope are the officials of the Catholic Church, Okay, So these red dots represent the local parishes that are all around us everywhere. But these local parishes cluster around what's called a diocese head. So we have the world head, who is the diocese head, and he's also the head of the local parishes, so in other words, the Pope is in charge of everything. Think of it as a a pyramid, and the Pope is at the very top, okay? So, radiating out from the Pope is this local diocese. The diocese is a geographical area, and there is a bishop, and the bishop is in charge of the diocese. And usually the bishop is in some sort of a large church, ultimately it would become the cathedral, cathedra in Greek means the throne of the bishop. So here's the center, which is the cathedral, and around it are all of these little parish uh, churches that you see here and there. So our local uh, uh, cathedral, our, the, the local diocese of the Catholic Church of Hawaii is actually down in Waikiki. It's the St. Augustine's Church with the green roof, the very pointed right next to the ABC store down there on Kalakaua right across from the beach. And Bishop Silva is the very first bishop to actually come out of Hawaii. So here's the Diocese of Hawaii. Bishop Silva's at the center of this. And all around this, you have all the little Catholic churches that are dotted everywhere around the islands. And each of those Catholic churches has a priest. And in some cases, if it's large enough, it would be an abbot. And these priests are essentially the shepherds, and they shepherd the flock. So imagine that Mrs. Hugo is Bishop Hugo, and she answers to Pope Benedict in Rome, and I am the uh, uh, the local. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. So actually, let's reverse that a little bit. Let's say that that Mrs. Hugo is Papa. She's the Pope. I am Bishop Rapun and you are the priests at the various little churches, the Catholic churches around me. You report to me, and I report to the pope. Now, ultimately, some of these bishops rise in stature and status, and they actually uh, begin to cluster around the pope, not these individual parishes, but around the pope, and they're called archbishops. Those are the guys that you see walking around in the Da Vinci Code, wearing the red uh, capes and the short hats and all of that. And it's from the archbishops that we get the pope. So if a pope dies, the archbishops convene in a convocation in the Sistine Chapel, where Michelangelo painted his famous ceiling, and they debate and vote on who the next pope will be. And when they finally decide who a pope will be, who the Pope will be, then they put a bunch of sticks that will burn white smoke in the fireplace, and when the white smoke comes out of the top of the fireplace, everybody, the millions of people watching on TV and in, the, in Vatican Square, know that a new Pope has been elected. Okay? So that's basically the structure of the Catholic Church. It's very hierarchical. It looks upward in terms of power structure, and it really doesn't include women. Women are not permitted to be authority figures within the Catholic Church. They can't be priests, they can't be bishops, they can't be pope. They can definitely be nuns, and that's part of the structure, and many of them became very powerful. But in essence, the Catholic Church is a very male-dominated institution and continues to be so today, okay? so. Okay, so, I don't put this up here to disparage the Catholic Church. Because uh, I don't want to do that, okay? But there is vocabulary within the church that would suggest certain kinds of things. It would connote certain kinds of things. So if Jesus was the shepherd, then the vicar of Christ, the Pope, becomes the shepherd on earth. And what is it that sheepherders do? They shepherd the flock. And this is the flock. And what is the assumption that's being made about the flock? There are a number of them. They're fearful, they're worried about their afterlife, they tend to bunch together when things get uh, a little bit crazy, when things get scary. And so the job of the shepherd is to take care of the flock, continue to move it as it grazes through faith and understands faith, but ultimately the shepherd's job is to get the flock to heaven, to salvation. Okay? This is the ultimate goal of faith, is to get to heaven. And so the church acts as the shepherd, and you can see that in the diagram above here. Now I would add my own personal commentary that there is a bit of a connotation here about the intelligence of the flock. That it is assumed that the church is really doing its thinking for you because you can't understand the great mysteries of faith. So here's the key idea that you have to pay attention to here. It's called the intercessor. The intercessor is the church and the church is between you and God. The church interprets the Bible, it lays it out for you in the church services, it explains the Bible to you, it explains how you get to heaven, it acts as the go-between, the in-between, the intercessor between you and salvation, and therefore assumes a tremendous amount of power. Other Christian faiths have rejected that idea and said that, in fact, you can have a personal relationship with God. You don't need anybody in between you and God. All you need is the Bible which is God's Word and you can understand what God wants and you can get yourself to heaven in in whatever way is necessary okay so just so we understand why I've put this image up there okay so here we have a short clip showing the current Pope Benedict the first German pope Welcome in many years. Patrick's this is his visit to New York just recently.
1: With thunderous applause, some 3,000 members of the clergy greeted Pope Benedict XVI. As religious members from across the country packed St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan, the Pope took yet another opportunity to speak openly about the issue of clergy sex abuse and the need for change. I join in pray such as may be a time of purification for each and particular church and religious community and a time for healing. In a whirlwind three-day trip to New York, the Pope started his day off Saturday with the first ever papal mass at the landmark church. He then made his way up Fifth Avenue in his Pope mobile, where thousands of people lined the streets to catch a glimpse of His Holiness. We love the Pope. We We love love the Pope. We love the Pope. We love him very much. Long live the Pope. And up in Yonkers, New York, they shared that sentiment. More than 20,000 faithful fans greeted Pope Benedict with more of a rock star welcome. In a prayer slash youth rally at St. Joseph's Seminary, the Pope reached out to the younger generation, comparing his days as a young teenager facing the Nazi regime. My own years as a teenager were married by a sinister regime that thought it had all the answers. His influence grew Infiltrating schools and civic bodies as well as, as as well as politics and even religion. Before it was fully recognized, was a monster it was. With the message of hope for the future, Pope Benedict's visit aims to reinforce faith. With the dwindling number of people joining the priesthood, he hopes his presence will bolster faith and secure the future of the church in America. Someday be the Pope's final day here in New York he'll head to Ground Zero where he will perform a blessing and meet with some of the family members of the victims from 9-11 then he'll head off to Yankee Stadium where he will perform a mass for 50,000 Catholics Bonnie, there's the Associated Press New York
0: Um, he's in his 70s so this is another clip of the Pope Benedict XVI dedicated his general audience catechesis on June 24th to the Year for Priests. The aim of this Year for Priests, the Pope said, is to support each priest's struggle toward spiritual perfection, upon which the effectiveness of his ministry particularly depends, and to help priests, and with them the entire people of God, to rediscover and revive an awareness of the extraordinary and indispensable gift of grace which the ordained ministry represents, for the person who receives it, for the entire church and for the world which would be lost without the real presence of Christ. Precisely because the priest belongs to Christ, he is radically at the service of all men and women. He is the minister of their salvation, happiness and authentic liberation, continuously growing in his progressive acceptance of Christ's will through prayer. So my wife and I were in uh, Rome Uh, recently, a couple of years ago, and uh, the Pope gives his message to the people every Wednesday in St. Peter's uh, Basilica, and we went down there to see the Basilica, but found it very difficult to get in because there were literally just tens of thousands of people waiting to hear the Pope's message. And in the end, we had to leave uh, with only seeing part of St. Peter's because of the security and all that. It turned out that the Pope's message that day was the Pope's ten rules for good driving which was a bit of a shocker. I mean, anybody, you guys have anybody been in Rome? Anybody been in Italy? The Italians couldn't give uh, crap, frankly, about any rules for good driving. In fact, they don't have any rules for driving in Italy. Basically, it's anything goes. Um, so it was very interesting that the spiritual leader of the church would be telling the Italians how to drive properly. Um, anyway, there you go. Okay, so. The Church, over time, begins to expand its power. It becomes a political power, it becomes an economic power, and it's arguable today. It's arguable, but potentially a fact, that the Catholic Church is one of the richest institutions in the world. I'm not necessarily talking about cash rich, I'm talking about land rich. They have land holdings that are so substantial, and often in such real estate uh, rich areas, that their their net worth is really, really powerful. And so they play a really important role in the global economy and in the uh, power, uh, political power economic struggles that go on in the world. But in the beginning, what we see is that the popes begin to struggle with the monarchs for power. And you see these images here. Here's the pope, and he's got what in his lap? The Bible. And here you see, as we've seen this image before, a monarch and he has this image right here, which is his secular image, this is his scepter, this is his right to rule in the civic sphere, but here he has a scepter, which is a a cross essentially, and so um, oftentimes rulers took both uh, spiritual authority and civic authority and they began to conflict with the popes over this. And so if you're beginning to think that maybe this thing is kind of getting off the spiritual path, that this was supposed to be a gentle process towards gaining heaven, you're right. In fact, what happens is a great corruption of the church itself as it begins to struggle for power and for wealth. And we're going to examine that um, in some detail as we go along. So their expanded land ownership gives them that wealth that they're looking for. And from that wealth, everyone in the flock is required. And this is true today. If you're Anybody here practicing Catholic? anybody here go to catholic mass? Mm, used to go to catholic school that today every practicing catholic is required to give one tenth of their production to the church so if you go to a catholic mass and you see the hat being passed around or the plate being passed around and you'll see some people put a dollar in and that might be just the person's contribution on that particular day or five dollars but often you'll see people put a check into it, and that check represents X amount. And somebody who's truly orthodox Catholic is actually literally giving one-tenth of their production, which might be their, you know, paycheck for that. This is the intensity of the devotion and loyalty to the Catholic Church. This begins early on, and it contributes to the rise and power of the Catholic Church, because money is power, okay? All right, so, Out of the Christian tradition and the development of the Catholic Church, we see an interesting kind of side tangent, which Burke has already talked about in the beginning of his film, um, Medieval Faith and Conflict, and that is monasticism. There were some people who, as St. Augustine uh, noted, just saw the end of the Roman Empire as good riddance, a bunch of worldly stuff that was all going to go to dust anyway. And in a world that had gotten very ugly and, and very difficult to live in, the best thing to do was to go off and be by yourself somewhere and wait it out, as he said. And this is essentially what the monastic tradition is. So it becomes popular almost immediately after, in the aftermath of the fall of Rome. These people are rejecting the world. These are secluded religious communities that still exist today. And they take vows of chastity and poverty and obedience to both their betters within the church hierarchy and also to God. Um, I don't know if you guys, any of you live on the Windward side, right? As you're going down the pulley and you make the hairpin turn on the, on the other side, you make the hairpin turn, and right there is that, is that road that goes down. There's a seminary there, which is a, uh, it's, a it's a convent, essentially it's a, a nunnery. And those nuns there have taken a vow of silence. They don't speak. Period. End of story. And once they entered it, and many of them have been there all their whole lives. They have never spoken to anybody. This is the vow that they've taken to be, to be in a, in a literally a, a marriage to Christ. They also have a conference center there that they rent out to anybody who wants to have a conference, and it's a beautiful location. But you'll never talk to any of the. Uh, of the nuns there because they've taken that vow of silence. Very interesting. So the question that I would ask is, what is it that's really prompting these people today to sit out the world and to be so separate? I mean, obviously the fall of Rome is over, and you're, you're, you're not out there uh, potentially being murdered by some uh, barbarian lout. So what is it that continues to impel people to go into these secluded monastic communities? What is it that they're getting there? There's many of them. They're all over the world. It's worth noting what's happening in these people's minds. Okay. Now, last point about the monastic community is that they were they eventually became the kinkos of their day because they were there, because they were secluded, but also because many of them were literate and they had great penmanship. They became the copyists of all of that work that Burke was talking about that ancient classical work that was surfacing in people's trunks and in you know in basements and everything and as as the copying demand rose it was the monks who were doing the copying were pre-printing press here so it's very interesting that they became this sort of copying center the kinkos of their day okay and here's an image of S- saint benedict and this is monastic chant monophonic chant that you often hear in monasteries yes Close your eyes, sit up straight. So monastic chant, uh, if you ever want to hear it live, you can. It's one of the great secrets of Honolulu. For the last 30 years, at the Lutheran Church across from Punahou, that old wooden beamed church, every Sunday night at 9 o'clock, there are about 15 Lutheran ministers who gather and sing the final mass of the monastic tradition, which is called Compline. It's what you sang right before you went to bed. And basically, you were entreating God to keep the devil away from you while you were asleep. It's a very short 25-minute Mass, and it's always sung in monastic chant, in uh, in, uh, uh, Gregorian chant, either monophonic or polyphonic. Polyphonic meaning that there are harmonies that are woven into it. And if you want to hear it, you can go. Every every Sunday night at 9 o'clock at that Lutheran church, in the dark, by candlelight, you can sit there and watch these... Lutheran ministers sing this. It's magic, believe me. It's it's goose-flesh type stuff that you experience there. And how amazing that for 30 years they've been doing that. And every time I've gone, which is many times, there's usually only two or three people there. It's a very, uh, I think it's one of Honolulu's little gems that we don't know about. Actually did it when I was teaching at Punahou, took uh, the entire class over there. Um, Easier to do when we were there than it would be for here, but if you wanted to go, it would be great. Okay, so just finishing up with, with, uh, sorry? Mm, nah, too hard to arrange. I know, I wish. Okay, so monasticism. They become the kinkos of the day. They begin to set the tone for what calligraphy turns out to be. They become the illuminated manuscript artists that we so celebrate today. You go to museums and you see exhibitions of illuminated manuscripts. These are the illuminations. And these uh, this this would actually be a a real size right here of a page, that this little illumination right here, if you get down close to it, is so stunningly detailed as to blow your mind. And I've seen illuminated manuscript pages, like a little tiny Bible, a little book of prayer, in which the page itself was only that big. And And the illumination part of it was that big but looked at under a a magnifying glass you see the same detail as you would see in something that was done much larger. Quite extraordinary. So sometime uh, you might want to explore using Google illuminated manuscripts and the art of the illuminated manuscripts and just uh, be amazed at the technical prowess of these monks as they develop this particular um, skill. On the other hand though, mistakes That were made in the copying were repeated over and over and over again because once one monk made a mistake in the language of a particular sentence that same mistake was then copied again and again and again and sometimes these mistakes weren't actually mistakes at all they were mistakes they were purposeful in some ways so a particular story in the bible might be altered in some way in order to fit the church's a particular message that they were trying to get out and that was simply copied in and over time it became the accepted word. So it's something to kind of pay attention to is that uh, without anybody really looking over their shoulders and paying attention to what was being copied sometimes these mistakes were done over and over. Okay, I want to talk just briefly about one particular monastic order that you're very familiar with and that's Saint Francis or the Franciscans. Everybody knows Saint Francis, he loved the animals. And the birds. You've seen it in Disney, I don't know, you've everywhere. I mean, this is the this is everybody's sort of sum total understanding of the monastic tradition as Saint Francis. But in any event, founded in about 1210, the Franciscan order was based on the idea of poverty, love of God's creatures on earth, and preaching the word of God and preaching poverty. In other words, Christ went to heaven with nothing but the loincloth around him. No possessions. So you hear these phrases about the fact that you're going to have to leave all your possessions behind and that none of those possessions on earth really mean anything. Now the point that I really want to make to you here is that you want to pay attention to the contradiction between those who are preaching the poverty of Christianity. You can't really be Christian unless you Divest yourself of your your worldly possessions and live the Christian life, which is the pure life with God You can't be Christian unless you do that. And yet if you look at the Catholic Church, it is wealth It exudes wealth the great cathedrals St. Peter's Basilica all of the uh, of the ornaments and the art and everything that you see in the great cathedrals even the small cathedrals in Honolulu go to St. Andrew's Priory and look at the stained glass. This was not done without money. So there's an inherent contradiction between the wealth of the church and the message of those who believe that the church really should be poor. And that will work itself out over time. It's still a great debate within the church, and we're going to hear more about it when we see Macaulay's film on, uh, on the cathedral. Okay. So the Franciscans, they become sort of the iconic monks and they have, you know, holding out their hands with a little bird on the end of it and being kind to animals and that sort of a thing, okay? All right. Now, as the Catholic Church gains power and as the Christian tradition gains power, some people begin to object. They begin to object to the messages of the Church. They begin to object to even some of the founding creeds of the Church. Like, for example, was Christ literally, the Son of God. Did God come down in the form of of an angel and impregnate Mary? This is the immaculate conception. She's a virgin, although it's not quite explained how she would have a husband and still be a virgin. But nevertheless, she is the immaculate virgin. She is immaculately concepted. She gives birth to the Christ child. And in the Catholic tradition, Christ is literally the Son of God. Not figuratively, it's not an idea. He is the Son of God. And He was crucified and then He rose after three days and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And if you don't believe that, the Catholic Church sees you as a heretic. This is the key term here, an unbeliever. And if you get enough of those unbelievers out there, you have trouble, as we all know. And so, the device that the church develops to combat bad thinking is called the Inquisition. So it's a a special court that's established by the church to combat this bad thinking. And accused heretics were sometimes tortured, often tortured, because the church believed that you were guilty and therefore the confession was simply an acknowledgement of that sin. So there's nothing wrong with torturing, because what you're doing is actually saving the person from eternal damnation. Once you confess, you can be forgiven. You can confess your sins, and you can be forgiven. And although you might be burned at the stake as a heretic, at least you've saved your eternal soul. Some interesting mental gymnastics that are going on here. But the general idea is that we have to be sure that the flock is safe. And when you get one person in there, as you guys totally know, one person comes in and says something to the flock and an infection begins, you know? Like, for example, here's here's an example that I'll give you. The Catholic Church says that you are not permitted to use birth control if you're Catholic. The idea is you're supposed to have children, you're to populate the earth with Catholics. God forbids birth control. Now, if I, as a woman, come into this little Catholic community here and go, psst, ignore the birth control thing, take control of your life. Oh. What's going to happen to the flock? It's going to get nervous. And then Johanna says to Jennifer, psst, I, I think he's right. She's right, sorry, I think she's right. And then what do we have in a few minutes? We have a rebellion against the church. We have to stop this in some way. So here's the question, which is the greater good here? The safety and security of the flock and obeying the rules or free thinking? This is a really hard question. Like me, standing up in the middle of a coker and saying, you know, there's no study that shows that girls learn better at all-girls schools. Would I be a heretic? You bet. By the way, there isn't. But I'm not saying that up at Coker. Why? Because I want to keep my job. Okay. So anyway, many of the uh, uh, convicted heretics were burned at the stake. And there's a whole big, long story behind the Inquisition, uh, which might be uh, worth your studying if you're interested in that kind of thing. And by the way, there's a particular movie that you might want to watch. It's a little bloody a little violent, has a little bit of sex in the middle of it, but hey, how's that different from any films that you guys are seeing these days? It's called Name of the Rose. Do you know, do you guys remember the actor Christian Slater? He was the total heartthrob when I was teaching at Punahou about 15 years ago, but maybe he's gotten too old to be a heartthrob anymore, which is very sad. But anyway, uh, Sean Connery and Christian Slater called Name of the Rose, and basically, it's kind of an inquisition story that a murder mystery that happens at a monastery, very dark and scary, kind of film, but uh, but fabulous film, uh, based on a book by Umberto Eco. Okay. So, this is um, uh, Goya, the great Spanish painter Goya's uh, painting of the Inquisition, and here is a heretic right here in the middle, and, uh, uh, well, actually, do I have that wrong? I'm not sure if this is the person presiding over it or if this is the heretic. This is the heretic here, and this is the individual, the official that's presiding over it. It's a very dramatic painting. Now, Goya's rendition of the Inquisition was turned into a film that came out just recently called Goya's Ghost. Here's the trailer for it. I'm sorry. At least I thought it was. Oh, yes, it is. Okay, here we go.
1: They you consider him the greatest painter in Spain? Most marvels work indeed. Oh, yeah. An artist renowned for his genius. Do you have the reputation of mocking the men of cloth in your work? No. Are you aware of how many powerful enemies you have, Well, yeah. Fortunately, I also have a few very powerful friends. A woman adored for her beauty. Why doesn't that painting have a face? Because he's a ghost. No, he is not. How do you know? But behind the art... Do you not see what demonic filth this guy is selling? Do you think there's not become very intimate with your models? Beyond the canvas, my daughter Ines has been summoned by the Holy Office. Ines, this preposterous. Is a world where the powerful are declared righteous. We have to return to the God-fearing ways of the past. And the innocent are declared guilty. What do you want, thinking Confess? The truth. My daughter will tell you. Tell me what the truth is! There are revolutions everywhere. In the name of Emperor Napoleon, we hereby proclaim the Spanish Inquisition abolished. All of his prisoners will be free! Like her, then. She made me so easy. She has taken leave of her senses sense sense in jail. Where is he, She's in a very good house. Javier Bardem, Natalie Portman, and Stellan Skarsgard. Why is she so important to you? You are completely obsessed with her. That face is engraved on my mind. I'm not going to battle her again.
0: Maybe between, the, uh, uh, between terms uh, one and two in that break there, you might want to uh, rent that film. It's an absolutely fabulous film. And Javier Bardem is just tremendous in that film. And it will tap you into the Inquisition. Okay, so we pause here for just a moment to look at these questions, and, and these questions partially come out of Van Doren's chapter, uh, this current chapter that you're reading, which is really part two of the Middle Ages. Um, the first chapter was Light in the Dark Ages. The second chapter is uh, the, the Great Experiment. Is that what the title of the chapter is? I can't remember exactly, but it's uh, it's it's The Great Experiment, right? And so here are these questions. How do I survive? This is the person living in the Middle Ages that we were talking about yesterday. Who are my enemies? What does God expect of me? Can God be proven? Okay? And so here's this average person, looking up into the air, and perhaps we do him injustice, which we might have been just a little bit yesterday, in thinking that this person, Joe the plowman, was not a thinking human being, that he was just a plowman, just a farmer, that there might have been a lot more thinking going on by these average people than was originally uh, thought about the Middle Ages. These questions are really, really important questions for these people, and many of them, of course, are still important today. Okay, so this is intermission, but actually, this is where we should have been if we'd gone a little bit further the last time, but this is the intermission now. So we pause for a moment, and then we move on from the intermission. That was the intermission. Okay, so for the moment, we're going to pause and just remember that in the midst of all of this rise of Christianity in the seventh century we get the rise of the second largest religion on the planet today which is Islam and it comes out of the Middle East it is a monotheistic tradition it's the same God of the Jews and the same God of the Christians but its prophet Muhammad is not a messiah He's not the Son of God, he's just the last prophet, the last prophet to receive the Word of God. In their sacred text, that, that sacred text is called the Koran, okay? So we want to make sure that we recognize that this is going on at the same time that Christianity is coming up, because Burke has already told us that the contact between Christians and the Moors, the Islamists in Spain, is what led to all this discovery of Greek and Roman uh, uh, classical uh, uh, learning in the form of the seven liberal arts and all of that, and that it really comes out of the Arab tradition. So with all the conflict that we have today with Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan and in the Middle East between Israel and the Palestinians and all of that, it's curious that Islam, which was once really the great intellectual power in the world, they had developed medicine and astronomy at levels Europeans couldn't have dreamed of, and yet today we seem to be in the same struggle with them, and we we tend to stereotype them as somehow stuck in some ancient past in some ways. So many modern people are asking, what happened to Islam? Why did, it, why did it reach such a peak and then descend back down into this violent chaos that it always seems to be suffering from these days? What happened to all of that? Okay, there's the Great Mosque at Cordoba. Alright, now, we emerge into the High Middle Ages with something happening that's great significance, and that is the building of the great cathedrals. And as Burke mentioned to you, the cathedrals are very much a statement to the flock, to the sheep, that in fact God is very much alive, the church is alive. Yes, the church is going to have to compromise a little bit with these freethinkers, but the church is still the dominant institution, and a cathedral sends out that message to the flock of the power and glory of God. So we start here with the old uh, Roman or Romanesque church. And the best way that I can um, explain the difference between Romanesque and Gothic is to bring out Titus. He's our gladiator, okay? So the original Roman Christian churches tended to be built in the image of the Romans. Short, squat. (laughs) Short, squat, and very thick. Short squat, and very thick. Not much in the way of windows. The arches are the rounded Roman arch, and the whole thing seems to just be so solid, just like the Roman Empire was. Later, we're going to get the Gothic tradition, which is the opposite of that. The Gothic tradition is tall, pointed arch, lots of glass, very thin, reaches all the way up to the heavens, almost like a spider-like quality to it. And, and it's one thing that we would want to be able to identify, I suppose, would be the difference between the Romanesque church and the Gothic church. There are still churches built today that are built in the Romanesque style, it depends on your preference. But the Gothic tradition becomes all the rage for about three, four hundred years in Europe. And we get from this the great Gothic cathedrals like Chartres, and Notre Dame. And out of that we get Disney films, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is actually based on, uh, on a book. Okay, so this is the Gothic uh, church. So in the high Middle Ages, I'm sorry, that was the Romanesque. In the high Middle Ages we start to get the Gothic church, high, pointed arch, spider-like, the great rose windows, the expressions of everyday life and spiritual life in glass. And these church designs are are really significant in terms of reflecting the change in thinking on the part of Europeans. On the one hand, you have still a very much, as Van Doren will call it, an obsession with God. I mean, wouldn't you have to be obsessed to build something like this with God? And yet at the same time, think of the technology and the learning that had to go into building this thing, geometry, math architecture, mechanical engineering. These are not subjects that you would normally associate with faith and yet these are expressions of that kind of learning. There's so something very curious going on here when we look at these cathedrals and again uh, Macaulay is gonna uh, do a really good job of explaining that to you. Now if you come on close-up with me you're going to see this cathedral. It's the National Cathedral in Washington. It's the third largest Gothic cathedral in the world. And it took 70 years to build. 70 years to build. And it was only finished just recently, as a matter of fact. Actually, in George Herbert Walker Bush, the Elder. That's Bush 43, not the younger one, Bush 41. It was actually finished when George Bush was president. And it's an astonishing cathedral. And we're going to go there if you come on that trip. But if you don't come on that trip, you should go there at some point. This is the uh, side aisle of the National Cathedral. And when you go in, it has all these flags flying, and they go all the way down the nave on both sides. And they're the flags of the 50 states. So there's this sort of nationalism that's built into faith and into this expression of this fantastic uh, learning of technology and uh, mechanical engineering. Now, back here at home, here's Central Union Church. And you can see that this is a curious mix between the Romanesque and the Gothic. The actual church itself is relatively short and relatively thick and still uses the Romanesque arches. And there's really not that much uh, window space here. But look at the spire and how it rises up into the air, very Gothic in its style itself. Central Union Church, where Punahou has its baccalaureate at the end of the year where they bless themselves before they graduate. Spare me, but okay. This is um, the head of the Catholic Church here in Hawaii, this is um, um, St. Augustine's Cathedral down there, and of course the temple to that which is not about faith is right in front of it, which is the ABC store. So on the one hand you have the temple to worldly thinking and consumerism, and on the other side you have this temple to faith. I really don't know, given that the ocean is out here, how this property ended up building how, the, how ABC managed to get this property and build right in front of the front door of the church. Because before, the front door of the church, when you walked out, looked directly out at Waikiki Beach. Must have been quite spectacular. Tells you the power of commercialism. Here's uh, uh, Sacred Hearts, or uh, it's actually, to be technical about it, it's Our Lady of the Sacred Heart. That's the real name of Sacred Hearts up there. And you can see, again, that this is a combination of the Romanesque and the Gothic. Short, squat, very thick, but yet with a pointed arch and with the uh, stained glass up there. Here's uh, St. Andrew's Priory, or St. Andrew's Cathedral, which is uh, very much more in the Gothic tradition. And with, especially when you look at that, this is one entire wall of stained glass. It's very beautiful, actually. That's a, it's a wonderful cathedral. Um, and this is the, uh, uh, from the inside of St. Andrew's Cathedral looking out at one of the stained glass uh, or through one of the stained glass windows. Very beautiful. This is uh, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco and that's me. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine uh, took this picture, Grace Cathedral, very beautiful, very much in the Gothic tradition, looks a lot like Notre Dame and uh, has a beautiful rose window which Macaulay will explain at great length. Alright, now, we're going to move briefly into the Crusades. And of course, if you've downloaded the next DBQ, clearly you know what its subject is. It is going to be the Crusades. You don't know the question yet, but you're going to study the sources that are related to the Crusades. So, I told you the story already about what happened to me at Punahou, right? Didn't I tell you that story? So I go in to teach class and I stick my head in the door and I go, I'm going on a Crusade! And then I shut the door and walk outside and the eight boys follow me." Um, So, uh, this is uh, definitely a microcosm of that kind of male thinking, right? Adventure, we're going to often kill people, yay! (laughs) And the women stay back and you know, they sew and they cook and they civilize all of Europe and make it a nice place. Uh, So, I know that that sounds simple, but in many ways that's what happened during the Crusades. You have a whole population of restless knights with nothing to do but farm and they're not particularly happy about that. And you have this hyper-religiosity and you have Islam on the rise and they take the holiest of holy cities in the Christian tradition. And all of a sudden in 1095 the Pope stands up and says, to the Holy Land, we have to get rid of the infidel, he's taken our holiest of cities. And, astonishingly, the male population, and a significant amount of the female population, gets up and goes several thousand miles by foot across Europe into the Holy Land to fight these wars that go on for a couple hundred years. So you've got to think about what was driving these people to do this, okay? So, we have the initial call in 1095. This is Pope Urban's speech in this cathedral. And basically, he says, we have to take back the Holy Land from the infidel. But he also promises spiritual rewards if you do that. Time off from purgatory, which is that place where you wait to find out whether you're going to heaven or hell. So, it's possible to take some years off of that. The Pope, Pope says, I can do that, no problem. Go off and fight, and the Church will officially recognize that you get, oh, I don't know, 100 years off of purgatory something like that, or other spiritual rewards, maybe even heaven itself. But thousands responded to the call and this is quite remarkable actually that they did. It doesn't often happen in history that way. So in 1096 mostly French knights went off to the Holy Land and in 1099 they actually captured Jerusalem back from the infidel, from Islam. But Jerusalem is retaken by Islam and then back and forth and back and forth and back and forth this goes on with much death and destruction and in the end when it's all over nothing had changed Islam was no smaller Christianity was no larger and Jerusalem was essentially divvied up the same way that it had always been so we can definitely say that this was years of fruitless fighting Now, here's a film clip from a film Called in the
1: face of your enemies. Oh my God. Safeguard the help.
0: Of Guess I know who the heartthrob still is.
1: That is your oath. Rise a night. Rise a night. The, the world will decide. The world always decides. Decide. A new world better world than has ever been seen there you are not what you were born but what you have it in yourself to be a kingdom of conscience peace instead of war love instead of hate that is what lies the end of crusade no need night. I offer you the world. You are a princess and I am no lord. You have my love and my answer. I got to pray. For what? For the strength to endure
0: is to come oh my gosh. You guys you guys totally cracked me up. Oh my God. My daughter, when she was your age, wrote a marriage proposal to Orlando Blue. She wanted me to help her write the thing. I said, no. You're going to write it, write it yourself. Um, so I thought that Orlando Bloom was kind of yesterday, but I guess he's not. Clearly not. Okay, well I learned something new today. All right, so anyway, Kingdom of Heaven, it's actually a, it's a good film. I will endorse it um, as, a, as a historically accurate film. What it does uh, it, it cheats a little bit by taking all the years of the Crusades and kind of crunching them down into a, into a single composite narrative but it doesn't lose anything in doing that and uh, there's, there's a lot to be said for how it treats the relationship between Christians and Muslims um, in the conflicts there and uh, in terms of the visuals and all that's uh, pretty accurate so I would, I would definitely endorse that Okay, so this shows you, using uh, one of our iMovies, just how far these French knights went. Uh, many of them by foot. If the, if the knight had a horse, he was riding a horse. But everybody else who was going with him, chances are, was probably walking as well. And, or they would have been taking a boat from one place to another. But this is actually a pretty amazing distance. So the comment here is, the distance says something about why they went, or at least it's an expression of, of the intensity of the conflict. It amplifies whatever the reasons are for why they went. Okay, that's the kind of central idea that you get out of this. All right, now as Burke has already mentioned, meanwhile, back in Europe, we start to see the rise of free thinking all that science and astronomy and mechanical engineering and geometry and math that was coming over uh, from Spain, uh, from Islam, translated from the Greek into the Arabic and from the Arabic into Spanish, from the Spanish into Latin, from the Latin into the new vernaculars, German and English, that it was beginning to have a bombshell impact on Europe and we start to see the springing up of these universities. And within these universities perhaps we see the seeds of the destruction of the absolute power of the Catholic Church. Because even though these universities are originally set up to train the clergy members, the members of the church, the hierarchy of the church, the officials of the church, you guys know what goes on in schools. Thinking goes on in schools. And when you let free thinking loose, you see the ultimate destruction of what the church wants people to think. It's dogma it's established creed from which you cannot deviate. Okay? So, something to pay attention to. I actually had a chance to uh, have dinner right outside the University of Bologna, which is the very first university established in Europe, and wow, watching all the students walking around, sitting on the sidewalks, and talking to each other, really brought that idea home to me. Yeah. Yeah, at the time that I was there. So, In addition to the rise of universities, we start to see for the very first time the emergence of nations where before Europe was a big sort of mishmash of ethnic peoples mixed up with uh, immigrants and and barbarian invasions and uh, different uh, religions and so on and so forth. We start to see the rise of distinct geographic areas that we can call a nation. The nation of France, which becomes the most powerful kingdom in Europe by the 1300s. We get the rise of England as a distinct nation through the Battle of 1066, the Battle of Hastings, the Norman invasion, and William the Conqueror, who is the one that brings feudalism to England and begins to settle things down after the chaos of the fall of Rome, because remember the Romans had control of England as well, that's the full extent of the empire. And so what we start to see is the institution of these kinds of things that we associated with nations, like the rule of law. That nations have laws, and different nations have different laws. They treat law differently, but within a nation you have an established rule of law. And we even see the emergence of these kind of central documents that are the framework for the rule of law even the framework for culture and society itself, like our Constitution, for example. So to bring that home here as we come down to the end, we have to pay attention to one of the most important documents to come out of European history. It's important to us, and it's called Magna Carta. And Magna Carta is a document written up by the nobility of England because they're sick and tired of their monarch taking their land without their permission, engaging in wars without their permission, spending money without their input, and eventually they sit him down, King John, and say, forget it already. You are going to operate according to a set of rules, and if you don't, you're gone. And what does he do? He signs, because that allows him to keep his monarchy, to keep his his kingdom, But from this moment forward, we have the spirit of rule of law beginning to emerge. And it's framed by this document here. And if you go on close-up, and we actually get to the National Archives, you'll see it, a copy of it. There's only a few copies in the world, actually. And and I stood next to it last year, and it's it's amazing, because it's starting to fade. And it's only about this big. It's quite small. But there it is under glass, just a few feet away from our Constitution and our Bill of Rights and our Declaration of Independence and all the other important documents that are in that particular room uh, under heavy security there, okay? So the, here's the great theme that you have to lock in on, the limit to power, there are limits to power. Magna Carta represents the moment when people begin to think about the idea that power can and should be limited. Okay? So, from this Magna Carta, we see the physical expression of this limit to power in the rise of competing institutions that check and balance each other. And uh, hopefully when we come back on Monday, I'll have a short clip to show you uh, from the English Parliament. Actually, I'm not sure if I included it here in this keynote. Um, but it, it shows how the authority figure has to go in and meet the entire body like Parliament, like Student Council, like our Congress, like our local legislature and has to go in and in the competition, in the marketplace of ideas this limit on power, this checking and balancing of power brings freedom and free thinking to people. This is the ultimate result of this is that we start to see the actual protection of free thinking because free thinking brings you checks and balances on power. Okay, let's see if I actually included, oh, here it is. Okay, watch. No, don't watch yet because I have to explain it to you. Every Tuesday morning in England, the Prime Minister of England, who is the equivalent to our president, has to go into his parliament and do what's called Prime Minister's Questions. He has to sit there and take questions from everybody within the House of Commons. And it gets crazy in there. They start shouting at each other. It's definitely not the tradition that we have. Our president goes and makes a speech in front of the, uh, the House of Representatives, and it's all very formal and very polite unless somebody from South Carolina yells, you lie. But, but, but we treat this as such a reverential event, right? It's all very decor and the whole thing. But in England, you don't have that tradition at all. Watch
1: of lending to the real economy can continue at normal rates. Does the Prime Minister accept that on those terms, his recapitalisation has failed, and when is he going to change it? Mr Speaker, the, f- the first point of recapitalisation was to save banks that would otherwise have collapsed. <laughs> and we not only save the world, save the uh, banks, save the banks and not <laughs> the, the world. We not only but not one depositor actually lost any money in Britain. And that is the first thing. The second thing is to get the banks into a position where they can resume lending. And that is why interest rates have come down by 3.5%, something the opposition said was not possible but actually happened. And the third thing to do is to work to remove all the barriers to interest rates and to the lending of money by the banks, and that is what we are doing in discussion with the banks now. Now, the opposition may not like the fact that we led the world in saving the banking system, but we did. Well, it's now on the record. He's hes so busy talking about saving the world, he's forgotten about the businesses in the country. All, all over the country, all over the country, there are businesses who've had interest rates... In-
0: So, you can't imagine our president in a situation like that, right? You can't imagine him going into Congress and having anybody stand up and shout and yell and that sort of a thing. So here's a question for you. Who's got the better system? Would it be better if our president had to go into Congress and do president's questions in a free-for-all atmosphere, or is it better that our president only speaks to Congress in formal moments like the State of the Union where he gives a speech which system yields the better result And they're very different so it's kinda of cool that we actually get to see them as so starkly different Okay, you can actually see Prime Minister's questions if you like that uh, you can go on YouTube and you can crank up Prime Minister's <laughs> questions all you want yeah, it is. It's, it's, and actually, I've been there. I've actually been in the gallery up above during that. And it's shocking. It was, the sho- it was shocking the first time that I saw it. Oh. That, you know, that, they're, they're, that literally people would, would stand up and just shout and then, uh, at the Prime Minister and then be told. At one point, I actually heard uh, one member say to another member just very loudly, Oh, shut up! In the middle of the whole thing. I mean, you just would, you'd never see that in our system. But again, which yields the better result? Okay, here we are at the end. The end of the Middle Ages. Just a few more things to check in on here. We've got to do this kind of quickly because we're running out of time. 1300 to 1500 is the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the Renaissance. This is a period of war. It's also a period of the Black Death, which arrives in 1347 in Europe and ultimately wipes out more than half of its population in three years. Upwards of 20 to 40 million people die of the Black Death. Okay? And as mentioned before, when I talked about the English longbow and the Battle of Agincourt, this becomes a time of intense rivalry between these nations that are emerging and who is going to be the stronger and who's going to have more power. So the Black Death, we're going to study at length. So we don't need to say anything more about that. You're going to see a film about it. You're going to do your own little bit of research about it. Um, and we're going to think deeply about who is responsible, who is to be held accountable for the devastation of the Black Death. In the conflict between nations, we get the Hundred Years' War. And this is the struggles between the French and the English and their royal families over who would rule either country. And out of that comes a very important narrative about a very famous woman named Joan of Arc. And Joan of Arc is this maid, the Maid Joan, a peasant woman, who hears voices, and the voices are the voices of God, or the voice of God, and God is telling her that she is going to lead the French in the battle against the English. And she does, in fact. And in fact, the French achieve a number of victories as a result of her leading these battles against the English. But ultimately, she's captured by the the English. And the English try her as a heretic, not because she was fighting against them, the political, but because she was hearing voices. They try her as a religious heretic, this is their way of taking care of her, and ultimately she's convicted and burned at the stake and becomes the great martyr in the French tradition. It's, you know, Saint Joan. So here's a uh, film trailer. Do I have this? From a recent film, I believe, called Joan. I was about 10 years old. I was taking a short through the forest when a strange wind began to blow. It was such a strange sound, almost like words calling me. Everything
1: was moving so fast. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. God had given me a message. A message to deliver. What was the message? Or course, in whole English army and she drove them away. That's too easy. We must be absolutely certain that she is not an instrument of the devil. The girl is crazy. We are, of course, enormously grateful for your past efforts. But now your task is done. I want that girl. But... You are not helping yourself by refusing to submit to our judgment. You claim to be my judges. You be careful. You think that God made the right decision to take an ignorant girl to save the kingdom of France? Even think you can know the difference between good
0: and evil? I was wrong about the title. It's not Joan, it's The Messenger, the story of Joan of Arc. So many films, so little time. Oh my God. Okay, so here's the last slide, if you will please change for me. Okay, so the medieval legacy. Hey, back again. One more time. The medieval medieval legacy. It's a transitional period between the fall of Rome and the Renaissance. It's a time when new kingdoms evolve. The church becomes the dominant force, but then loses ground to free thinking and nationalism. And this is the time when modern institutions are formed, especially the modern university. Which you were going to struggle so hard to get into, yes. This is when these modern institutions are formed. Burke talked about them, uh, and especially it's uh, over over the period of the final years of the Middle Ages. It's the rise of science, which would then begin to compete with faith as an explanation for things. So here's the last question that I'll leave you with here, before I show you the last slide. Here it is: In my own life. Which better explains things, science or faith? The topic is still very much alive and well. Okay, science or faith? So here are the questions that we started with in this whole thing. Okay, we've already talked about was the life of labor miserable or reasonable? We've been talking about what was on the hearts and minds of medieval Europeans, God or. And then the final question we're going to deal with is who should be accountable for the devastation of the Black Death? And that finishes part two.